If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave and get their attention, they'll be happy to get one in your hands. Always good to be able to hear the word of God, but also follow along with your own eyes. And if you don't own a Bible then and you receive one, consider it your own. Take it home, begin to tear into it and, and uh, enjoy it as a gift from the Lord. Sunday mornings, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and we come now to his resurrection, and which raises the question, are we allowed to teach on the resurrection in February? So I guess, I hope we can, but uh, of course, the message of his resurrection, that'll teach and preach any old time, and I'm happy to always uh, contemplate that. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and he sat on it. And his countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice, for they came, so they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Yes, indeed. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. And so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're a speaking God, that you are a God who loves to reveal himself and your ways to us. And we're so thankful for that. Lord, our days and our weeks and our lives are filled with so many voices and more or less valuable. And we thank you always for the opportunity to turn to your word And to know, Lord, that there is no greater message that we can hear than your voice and your revelation of yourself. So we thank you, Lord, before we turn to this passage, before we begin to study it, for all that we're going to learn about you in it. And we want to know everything you have for us to know about you. Would you freshly fill us now with your Holy Spirit as we continue our worship of you and the study of your word. We don't want to study it independent of you. May you be strong inside of our hearts, Lord, and in this room, actively participating 
in the teaching of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In our Bible passage this morning, we learn that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a cause for great joy, uh, for rejoicing. Whether I think a person is a Christian yet or whether they uh, are a Christian, there is a joy that exists in the human condition that is exists in this world that is accessible to us as human beings, a joy that would not otherwise be present in this world and available to us apart from that resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We notice the sequence of events surrounding Jesus' resurrection. We're told that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the mother of James, they were making their way to the tomb uh, of Jesus. They had uh, seen where Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had buried Jesus in what tomb. And so we're told in verse 1, it was on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, that they then approached that tomb. And we're told that these events occurred just as the day was began to dawn. So no street lights in those days, no flashlights, something like that. So the average person had to wait for the sun to come up to provide enough light to then make their way to the tomb as they intended. And so as soon as there was enough light, this is their love for Christ. They're going to that that tomb and they're going. Luke's gospel tells us with the intent of finishing off the anointing of Jesus's body with spices. And Mark's gospel tells us about the discussion that these women were having with one another as they were making their way to the tomb. And the single great uh, subject of their discussion was the problem that they knew that they felt that they would face when they came to the tomb. And that is, how in the world were they going to roll that stone away that now covered the tomb of Jesus in order to further anoint his uh, body? And so that tells us that Resurrection is the last thing that was on their minds. Their expectation was not to go to the tomb of Jesus on that third day following his death and find a resurrected Christ. They fully expected to find a dead body there and to further anoint that dead body. Notice in verse 2 that as they arrived there, there was a great earthquake at the site of the tomb and apparently caused by the uh, descent of an angel from heaven. Luke's gospel records uh, speaks of two angels, but Matthew focuses his attention upon the lone angel that does the speaking. And so we are told in verse two that the angel rolled back the stone which had been sealed and had been covering the mouth of Jesus's tomb. And it's important to realize not in order to let Jesus out of the tomb. Jesus has already been resurrected, but in order to allow them to come in and become witnesses of the resurrection to uh, discover a re resurrection already accomplished. And so he rolls the stone to the side and then the Bible is, I love the details of the Bible. The Bible then tells us that he sat on the stone. It was an act of triumph. He, he turns this great stone, this great concern of them, 
into a chair. Now, the angels are described in, in this angel in particular, but both of them really are described in verse three, a face that is bright as lightning. Now, lightning is pretty bright stuff. Clothing as white as snow. In other words, blinding. If you, if you go skiing, I've never skied in my life. I have other ways to uh, tear my uh, knees apart. But and it's just cold. But anyway, enough about my problems. That lodge looks great to me. But anyway, so, so here, if you ever go out skiing and the, the sunlight and the light off of that snow, it's just blinding. And so this is what they walk into the middle of the supernaturalness of this and this angel and, and, and the blinding. Very, very awesome to behold. We notice in verse four the effect that all of this had on the Roman guard. We're told they began to shake uh, involuntarily out of fear. I don't know how many of you have ever been fearful in your life. Don't shout out. But to such a degree, we've all been fearful in life. But to such a degree that you lose the control of your body. You just begin to shake involuntarily. And it tells us that they became like dead men. And so their fear incapacitates them. It's got them absolutely gripped. And it's important to realize these were just regular guys, regular people. These were members of the Roman Praetorian Guard, which was the elite forces of Rome. Rome had the greatest military in the world at the time, highly disciplined military. And for these men to have the position of guarding Roman officials in foreign lands mean that they had fought in Roman legions all around Europe and that part of the world for many, many battles and many, many wars before this would be a position that would be given to them. They weren't men that were frightened easily of things. What happens here leaves them absolutely terrified. And they fled from their post and they ran into Jerusalem to find the religious leaders who had posted them there with Pilate's permission to tell them what it is that had happened. Now, a Roman soldier would never leave his post without uh, approval, without permission to do so. That was a capital kind of crime in the Roman military. Again, a very disciplined military. You couldn't have just wonder when you posted a Roman guard whether they were going to stay there or you left and they were going to still be there. They were to stay at their post to the point of all of them dying at that post. So for them to flee that post, I mean, something something otherworldly, and that's exactly what happened, had to happen to them. And they run into the city to the priest to tell them what it is that that had happened. Something happens here that causes them to disregard any thought for their lives. And if that I think to myself sometimes as I look at this passage and I think about, you know, it's fascinating to study angels in the Bible. I bring it up every so often. There's some angels that are in the in the Bible and they have contact with men and they're very much in in the form of another man, another person. And so they're not too intimidating in that form. And then you go into the book of Revelation or Daniel or other places and you Ezekiel, you see these angels that just take your breath away and uh, and and you would never want to uh, if you're if you're living in your house and you say, God, if you're real, would you send an angel? Well, you better have earthquake insurance on your house or tell your landlord if you're renting 
It might be an earthquake that would happen with it. So, but just to see an angel, that your created beings leave people undone. And sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, when I get, I got a few, I got a few things I want to say to God when I get up there, you know, and the whole thing. And I think to myself, I, I don't think you'll uh, have a, a great capacity for speech, candidly. You think about Jesus, people that reject Christ for the fullness of their life, and they go into eternity Christ, Christless, one day an appointment to stand, not before an angel, but the awesomeness of Jesus in his eternal glory, and then to give an explanation for the rejection of, of him, and people fully thinking that this, they're going to carry on some kind of a coherent uh, conversation with him. You shouldn't count on the ability to speak coherently on that particular scene. Amazing, uh, these angels, but more amazing, the Lord. You notice in verses 5 through 7, the angel then addressed the women, told them, don't uh, be afraid. Why would he say that? Except that they were afraid. They were pretty well freaked out by what they were seeing. Again, they went there expecting to find, they were going, they were going to a, they were going to a cemetery on a Sunday morning. So they probably, isn't a, there aren't many places that are quieter than that in the whole world. And they come in and all of this is unfolding. So it freaks them out. They're, they're frightened. And, and he tells them, don't be afraid. And further, he said, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here for he is risen. I like in one of the gospel accounts, too, as it's put, why seekest thou the living among the dead? Probably my favorite verse associated with Jesus's resurrection. And then he invites them to enter into the tomb and see the place where Jesus once lay in the tomb in order to become personal witnesses to the resurrection. Uh, Sometimes uh, we've had the privilege of being able to lead groups from the church over to Israel and kind of a Bible pilgrimage. And as we spend, you know, 10 days in the land on the ground, not counting travel days, but 10 days on the ground, as we get toward the later part of the trip, it isn't unusual for one, two, three, four people to ask me privately and say, Pastor, what what is your favorite site here in all of Israel? And I never hesitate for a moment in answering that question. I always tell them the garden tomb. Because at the garden tomb, the place where Jesus was raised from the dead, you have within eyeshot the within eyeshot the three greatest events that have occurred in human history, the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's in that place that we enjoy the Lord's Supper or communion with the Lord right there in that particular place. It's kind of unfair to say, what's your favorite spot? Because that ends up being everybody's favorite spot. Better to ask, what's your second favorite spot? And then everything kind of gets on the same playing level field. But I, it's fascinating to me on when we get to the garden tomb, because as you go there, everyone is given an opportunity to kind of duck down into the opening, into the darkness of that tomb, and to become witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And so I watch 
is groups of our group will go in one at a time, two at a time, three at a time, go in and then come back out maybe a minute later, two minutes later, three minutes later, five minutes later. And to realize as they have come now out of that tomb, they have joined these women only separated by time, not by experience. They've joined these women on that first day of Jesus's resurrection in becoming personal witnesses to his resurrection from the dead. Now, the angel told them in verse seven to go quickly and bring the news of the resurrection to the disciples, to the men. Where were the men? They're all hiding. The women came out and came to the tomb on that morning. So he says, listen, you've got to take this message to the men. And then he was further told them in verse seven that Jesus would go before them into Galilee, away from all of the corruption of, of Jerusalem, and he, uh, there they would see Jesus. Now, that doesn't preclude Jesus meeting with them in the upper room, which he's going to do later on that evening. It's merely saying that Jesus would be meeting with them up in the Galilee, ultimately, to give his most important teaching to them, including uh, the Great Commission before he ascended into heaven. Now, the response of the women, verse eight, it's wonderful, was obedience. We're told that they went out of the tomb quickly. I mean, their, their obedience was immediate to what the angel had told them. You put yourself, it's always fun to put yourself in the place of these different characters. Put yourself in the place of those women. What's going on in their heart? I mean, they're going with this particular expectation. It turns into this other expect, this other reality. And they're, and you go into those situations where your mind is trying to catch up with everything that's happening around you and your heart and your emotion. They're relationally connected with this Jesus. They love uh, Jesus. So this news is impacting them in every way that it can. And and then here is this news that's been entrusted to them, this message that they're given to deliver. How exciting. And we're told that they were filled, number one, with fear, just a reverential awe of, in terms of what was happening. And we're also told that they were filled with great joy. Again, not expecting a resurrection, going to find a dead body and and uh, talk about God doing exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or think. They certainly ran into that. And so they ran, we're told, to bring the news of the resurrection to the disciples. Now, it's interesting to notice that the news of the resurrection of Jesus was entrusted to women before it was entrusted to. And it wasn't because they knew they'd get the word out fastest. That's not don't be thinking that (laughs) God's up to something a lot more significant than that. The fact that he would entrust this message. That God would trust the message of the resurrection of his son to women first before men. Very significant and very significant in the light of of the culture, the times that they lived in. And among other things in that culture, women were not considered to be qualified to be witnesses in a court of law. You could not use a woman as a witness in a court of law because they were considered to a person untrustworthy in establishing the facts concerning anything. That was the that was the view, very low view of Women in in those days. 
Now, heaven knows nothing of that. Heaven doesn't have any attitude remotely close to that related to women and its attitude toward women. And Jesus certainly knows nothing of that at all. The women were the last at the tomb when the men were nowhere to be found. They're the first, the last at the cross and the first at the tomb on the morning of his resurrection. And Jesus honored it. And while their culture wouldn't even allow them to testify in a court of law, Jesus gave them the privilege of being the first to testify to his resurrection, to testify to the gospel of his death, his burial and his resurrection. Now, why bring that up? Why make that a point? You know, we live in a culture here in the United States of America, which isn't perfect in in this realm, but it is certainly one of the most progressive in the entire world in terms of sometimes you look and say, well, he he gave this testimony to women before he gave it to men. And we could think in, in kind of the evenness of this culture, relatively speaking, that what's the big deal about that? But it's a big it's still a big deal all around the world today. It was a big deal in those days, too. So often today, and I run into it on a regular basis, and that's why I mention it. So often people think of the God of the Bible or Christianity as somehow being disrespectful toward women. And I'll tell you, when I hear people say that, I say, I say to myself, they're ignorant on two fronts. Number one, they're ignorant of the Bible. And number two, they are absolutely ignorant of history. And number three, we could add, they are absolutely ignorant of worldwide human conditions. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, you look all around the world and look at the place of women, the plight of women in countries that do not have a Christian heritage that have not yet been impacted by the gospel, and you look at the treatment of women in that culture, in that nation, how they are esteemed. And then you look at the place that is given to women where the gospel has had an impact, and there's no comparison between the two. Christianity elevates the position of a woman to a place that you would never otherwise know. In the very fallenness of this world, in the might-makes-right carnality fallenness of this world. And it's Christ that introduced that, and Christ that modeled that, and the God of the Bible that has modeled that, and that we see witness to here in this passage. And then notice in verses 9 and 10, just as they were running to tell the disciples about this wonderful news... They had to be thinking, you know, things just can't get any better than this. Suddenly they do get better than this because Jesus himself then meets them on the way and speaks to them. Again, Jesus makes his first post-resurrection appearance, not to a man, but to women. Now, I want you to notice in verse 9, Jesus, his single word commentary that he gives to sum up Uh, In one word, his resurrection, and it is the word rejoice. There is something about this resurrection of Jesus from the dead that gives the whole world a cause for rejoicing that we would not otherwise possess. And the word rejoice in the original language there 
It means to rejoice. It means to be cheerful. But even more importantly, it refers to an internal sense of calm, of joy, an internal sense of being well off in the deepest part of our hearts and of our minds. Well, all of this to me, and I hope it raises the same question and one or two of you in the room, but all of this raises a question within my mind. And the question is, why in the world is this resurrection such a cause for rejoicing? And that's an important question to answer. I think if you ask even the average Christian, regular Christian, and you say to them, could you tell me what the significance of Jesus is? Death upon the cross is. And most Christians would be able to say, well, it's there that he paid the penalty for the forgiveness of our sins. But if you were to ask that same question, maybe a non-Christian asking a Christian and saying, well, could you elaborate a little bit on the importance of the resurrection to your Christian faith? Well, we might be stumped a little bit by that question. And yet that that question is one that is answered in the scriptures. And I want to give a few of the reasons why this resurrection is a cause for rejoicing. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it declares him to be the son of God, just as he claimed it. It verified it demonstrated as true his claim to be divine, to be God. To be God the Son and to be the Son of God. During Jesus' public ministry in, in his teaching, he continually claimed himself to be equal with the Father. And he claimed that the Father would one day raise him from the dead after three days. If his claim to be equal with the Father, if his claim to be divine was false, then the father would have left him dead in that grave. But if his claim to be divine was true, then the resurrection from the dead would be the father's way of substantiating that claim. And that's precisely what the father did in raising him from the dead. The Holy Spirit put it this way in Romans chapter 1 verse 4. And Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection puts heaven's verification upon his claims to be the Son of God and God the Son. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it reveals him to be the promised Messiah. When Adam and Eve fell, they sinned in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, way back at the beginning of the Bible. God declared and began to prophesy at that point of a Messiah, a Savior, that he would send into the world in order to save us from now our fallen condition, our sinful condition that all of us are born into as a result of their sin. And the Old Testament prophecies that God gave concerning the Messiah that he would send into the world necessitated that the Messiah would die, that he would be buried, and that he would rise again on the third day. In Isaiah chapter 53, clearly predicted the death of the Messiah. 
Over and over again in Isaiah 53 and elsewhere, it is prophesied. And yet, in Psalm 16, verse 10, the Lord declared that though this Messiah would die, he would not remain in that dead condition long enough for his body to cease corruption, but that he would be resurrected. Psalm 16, verse 10, David writing to God by the Spirit, he said, For you, speaking to the Father, will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you, speaking to the Father, allow your Holy One, speaking of the Messiah, to see corruption. And so the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it reveals him to be the promised Messiah according to the Scriptures. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus is important because it reveals that man can be justified by faith, simple faith in Jesus. Now, to be justified in the eyes of God means for God to look at me just as if I'd never sinned. He's got a problem because I have sinned significantly and continue to sin, try as I might not to. So when a person is justified, it means that God sees us just as if we'd never sinned. That position of God viewing us in that way occurs when we put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. When I trusted in Jesus as my Savior, the perfect righteousness, right onness, perfection of Jesus was put to my account because of my faith in Jesus. So that when God looks at me now, he doesn't see my unrighteousness or my sin, but he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. Paul put it this way in writing to the Corinthians. He said, and he that is speaking of the father made him speaking of Jesus who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so when we put our faith in Christ, the Bible says we're justified. God sees us, uh, sees Jesus' justification in his perfection or, uh, put uh, to our account. The perfect righteousness of Jesus put to our account. And the resurrection of, of uh, the, uh, put God's stamp of approval upon the fact that man is justified by simple faith in Jesus. Holy Spirit put it this way in writing to the Romans, chapter 4, verse 24. It, speaking of righteousness by faith, shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And so... During Jesus' public ministry, he declared that he would become the satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. He said that the Son of Man didn't come into the world to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And then the hour of his crucifixion came. Jesus died to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins. But then we can look at that as human beings and ask ourselves, how do we know that his sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to God for the forgiveness of our sins? How can we know that our sins are forgiven and that we're justified in the sight of God? And the answer to that is the resurrection. The resurrection is the evidence 
that the Father accepted the perfect sacrifice of his Son for the forgiveness of our sins. And to that I say, praise the Lord. Number four, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it reveals that our faith that we have placed in him is not in vain. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 and also verse 20. And he wrote and he said, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. It's empty, it's worthless, it's meaningless if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead. But then he went on to say, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, then his words and his teaching couldn't be trusted, and thus our faith would be empty. But because of his resurrection, which the Holy Spirit recognizes to be a historical fact, it is now unbelief toward that resurrection and toward Jesus that now becomes vain and empty. Because it has unbelief has no credible explanation for the historical fact of Jesus's resurrection, evidenced by the word of God, evidenced by eyewitnesses, evidenced by the untold millions of people who've been changed by that death and that burial and that resurrection. It's and, and I think a case in point here is the bribing of these soldiers in verses 11 through 15, where the soldiers leave the guarding of that tomb. They take the report to the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders say, okay, listen, we're going to take care of this. Here's what you need to say. And and uh, this is how we're going to deal with this truth of Jesus's resurrection. They paid the guards a great sum of money to spread the false Rumor that Jesus' disciples had come by night and stolen the body of Jesus while they were asleep. Now, I don't know who was in charge of coming up with the excuse uh, or coming up with a lie, but they should be fired. Because that's about the most illogical explanation you can give for the resurrection. Because if the guards were awake, then they wouldn't have allowed the body to be stolen. And if they were actually asleep, then how could they know who in the world even came and stole the body? So the explanation of the lie creates more questions than it answers. The fact of the matter is, in the light of Jesus' birth and his life and his teaching and his death and his burial and his resurrection, from the vantage point of heaven, the vantage point of sanity, not tainted by sin, from the vantage point of heaven, it is unbelief that becomes vanity. Not faith in the light of Jesus's resurrection. Now, God sweeps away this lie that Jesus's body was stolen by the disciples in an almost humorous way. It isn't like God said, oh, no, this is what they've come up with. How am I going to get any sleep until I figure this out? He just takes his time some years later. He completely nullifies the lie in saving the most unlikely candidate for becoming a Christian in the history of the world. A man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who ultimately became, has become known as uh, the Apostle Paul. 
nobody hated Christ, hated Christianity, hated Christians more than Saul of Tarsus. He gave his entire being to the destruction of Christians and of Christianity. And he had wrought such havoc upon the Christians that were in Jerusalem, imprisoning them, some of them being put to death and persecuting them in the way that he did. Not satisfied with that, he got permission to now go to Damascus and to root them out of Damascus. He, there was, there was, it was, he wanted to go into Gentile lands to put an end to this thing surrounding Jesus. And so he begins to make his way to Damascus. And as he's on that road uh, to Damascus, he gets knocked off his high horse by the Lord. And uh, and the Lord begins to speak to him in a great light. And he's blinded and all. And ultimately, he comes to know the Lord and has his conversion experience on that road. The fascinating thing about the Apostle Paul is he was a Pharisee and almost certainly a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. The body of Jewish religious leaders that these Roman soldiers came to to report exactly what had happened at that tomb. That group of Jewish religious leaders who then consulted to put this lie together. And if Paul was a part of the Sanhedrin, he knew that that body had not been stolen by disciples. He knew that the guards had been bribed and he would have never trusted in Jesus as his savior unless he knew that the story concerning Jesus's body being stolen was a lie. And so he didn't say to Jesus on the Damascus road, I thought the disciples stole your body. He said to Jesus, Lord, what do you want me to do? Translation, uncle, I give up. I see what I'm up against. Someone bigger than me. My life is in your hands. Use it as you see fit. I'll tell you that lie that's reported here in the scripture has been exposed by every life that has come to Christ and has been changed as a result for the past 2000 years. And my life is one of them. The scriptures testify to his resurrection. The angel testified to his resurrection. The soldiers testified to his resurrection. The women testified to his resurrection. Paul's changed life testified to his resurrection. And so his every Christian life since that time. There is no other explanation for the change that God has made in my life and in your life. Except that Jesus is risen from the dead and he now lives his life in us and through us. And I say, praise the Lord for that. Number five, the resurrection of Jesus is only 30. So relax. The resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it reveals to us his power over death. It provides us with a victory over death. First Peter, chapter one, verse three, Peter wrote and he said, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again. Speaking to Christians, he has borne us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Mankind is in need of a living hope. We can't live without hope. We can't live without a living hope. What is a living hope? It's a hope that has conquered death. 
It's a hope that lies beyond the reach of death. It's a hope that cannot be affected by death. And God has provided us with that quality of hope and confidence in the face of death through the death and the burial and the resurrection of His Son. And the reason that Jesus can offer everlasting life to us is because He has defeated death. You have to have everlasting life in order to give everlasting life. And only Jesus can offer everlasting life because only Jesus has conquered death. Mankind is in need of a Savior who has conquered death, and Jesus is that Savior. Well, Mrs. McGillicuddy doesn't agree. I don't care what Mrs. McGillicuddy says. I'm preaching the Word of God. From the vantage point of heaven, there is only one Savior in human history. There will never be another that has provided us with a hope that can withstand the enemy called death that is an enemy to each and every one of us in this room. You know, sometimes they talk about people who are young, you know, they're in their teens or they're in their 20s, and they don't think about death. They think that they're immortal. They just go on and they put their life at risk in ways that they won't when they have more sense, perhaps a little bit later in life and all. That wasn't true of me. Maybe I was a little more melancholy than the average kid or young adult. I thought about death all the time. And I come up and and came into the adult life, and I went out into the world, and I spent some number of years investigating the wisdom of the world. And as I looked around at that world and what people were giving themselves to and this and the answers, and I couldn't find hope anywhere. I couldn't find hope anywhere. And I read broadly and I studied and I was in contact with the age and the culture and the learning and the whole thing. And I could not find hope anywhere in this world. And I wasn't the kind of person that could live day in and day out and just do my little thing and all. I had to have the macro figured out before I could be at peace and have any kind of joy in the micro. And I couldn't figure out where's the hope in this life and where is the victory over death? Where's the answer to death? Who is telling us where death came from, much less how to conquer death? And if you can't tell me where it came from, then why should I believe you about what you have to say after death? None. Nonsense. I couldn't buy it, couldn't buy any of it. So what I give myself to running, got my little tennis shoes, and I ran and I ran and I ran and I ran. And nothing wrong with running for exercise, but I was running for more than exercise. I was running to outrun death. To keep myself in good physical condition and, and then to take vitamin C, but not any vitamin C. It had to be vitamin C that had the bioflavonoids. And then I had to have the lactobacillus drink so that there would be the proper bacteria in my large and small intestines. And then giving myself to running and the book that I was reading was the big book at the time. It was the runner's Bible at the time by the name. The author's name was Jim Fix and he died of a heart attack on a run. (laughs) Nothing wrong with him. I mean, he did it, tried to do a good thing. He had a bad history and a lot of different things he was trying to overcome, but he, he died. It was a 
put a damper on my running. I took up the Adele Davis diet. Somebody gave me a book and, hey, this is good and all right. Well, let me read about this whole thing and started to incorporate parts of Adele Davis's diet. And Adele Davis died. And not only did she die, but then the experts began to come out and began to investigate her diet. And they're absolutely convinced that she died of her diet. I was looking everywhere for a victory over death. Who can tell me why it exists in the human condition? Who can take this enemy? I tell you, death is running behind every single one of us in this life, no matter what our age is. It's an enemy that has to be defeated. How wonderful to come and to realize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has provided mankind with a victory that is greater than the death that follows all of us. The resurrection six of Jesus is a cause for joy because it reveals his power over hell, his victory over hell, his authority over hell. Revelation chapter one. Here's the Apostle John who loved the Lord so much, so familiar with him during Jesus's earthly ministry. He would lie close to him during the meals. Very, very close. John was probably by far the youngest of the disciples. In Revelation chapter 1, he sees Jesus in his heavenly glory. And he said, and when I saw him, I felt that his feet is dead. But he had laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. And then he said, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. That's the truth. Tap, tap, no erases. These are loose translations of the word amen. And then Jesus said, I have the keys of hell and of death. By the time Jesus got done with hell on that cross and in his burial and in his resurrection, he took these two things, these two enemies of man, death and hell, and he conquered them so thoroughly that they just became keys on his keychain. What is a key? A key represents authority. When you have a key to a door, you have the authority to open that door and enter that room. When you have a key to a door, you have the authority to lock that door. And Jesus was communicating because of his resurrection from the dead. He has absolute authority over death and over hell. His victory, not only does he have that victory, but he has found a way to share it with us. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a cause for joy because it's provided us with a high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and the Bible says that he ever lives to make intercession for us, and he's able to save to the uttermost. You say, why is that a big deal to me? Let me read a couple of verses to you. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Romans chapter eight, verse thirty four. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Why? It's wonderful to sit here and to realize as a Christian 
Because he's interceding for me right now. He's interceding for you right now. Five minutes from now, you know what he's going to be doing? He's going to be interceding for you. Tonight, he will intercede for you. Tomorrow morning, he will intercede for you. The following day, he will intercede for you. He will never stop interceding for you. Why do we need this intercession? We need it on a lot of levels. But we need it in the light of the accuser of the brethren, the devil, who also accuses us before the Father day and night. I wish I was perfect. I'm not perfect. I try to be perfect. I try to obey God's word. But on a daily basis, I fall short. And I supply the devil with something to go up in front of God the Father with and say, look at this scoundrel that you've saved and this is what he does and this is what he said and this and all and look and here and the whole and he lays the case out and he's got an airtight case in terms of perfection related to any of us. And then Jesus steps in in his intercession and he speaks to the Father not to remind him but to remind the devil of the power of his death and burial and resurrection. And he says, but it's for those sins that I died on the cross, was buried and rose again on the third day. There's an author that I like very much, and I'm not going to tell you what his name is, because when I do that, it tortures you. Some of you anyway. But I like all of his other books, but he wrote one book, and I like the book, but I don't like the title. And the title of the book is I Talk to the Devil. I talked to the devil. I said, devil? Who in the world would want to talk to the devil? When we have a high priest that's going to intercede for us. Somebody has said, listen, if the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. I don't, I don't advocate it. It's a catchy saying, but we don't even have to talk to the devil at all. Often he gets us in this conversation where we're defending ourselves and condemnation and the whole thing. And we don't need to do it at all. But to allow Jesus to defend us on the basis of his sacrifice and not our practical righteousness. You know why that's important to understand? Because there's a lot of people in the world, they don't believe in the devil. They don't believe in darkness. They don't believe in that power. They don't believe it. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of people who get saved all around this world every single day, and they understand that power. They're raised in tribes and villages and places where that kind of power and that kind of darkness has dominated that village or that city since it began for thousands of years. Or even in our culture where a young person can get tapped in, whether they're raised in some kind of a household or this or that, get tapped into evil and turn around and one day realize that they are so in bondage to some particular sin or so in bondage to the memories of what the devil got them to do at some point in their life. And then he not only leads us into that sin, but then he begins to batter us with that sin that he led us into into in condemnation and it's wonderful to realize that I can come to Christ this morning and the death burial and resurrection of Jesus is so great and so powerful that it will completely overwhelm any of our pasts it will cover our past with the blood of Jesus Christ so that any time we look back, we don't see our sin, but we see the greatness of his forgiveness and it translates into praise in our heart toward him. 
And He gives us, not only does He overwhelm our past, but He overwhelms our present. He gives us the power by His Holy Spirit to live a life like we've never been able to live before. And when you've dabbled in that realm and been taken control on some level by that realm, somebody's got to tell you that there's someone who's got the keys and have authority over that realm and can free you because you won't find that not in one book from man, not in a thousand books from man that you read. That either comes from God or you don't get it. And we have it in human history because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his victory over the devil, who we can be sure did all that he could do to keep that resurrection from occurring. And he was powerless in the face of it. That's the power of God that comes in us when we're born again by the Holy Spirit. Everyone has hope in this world. You can preach this gospel anywhere in this world and to everyone in this world, and no one is an exception. No one is a yeah, but, or you're a category, or this doesn't, a special category, or this doesn't work. It works for everybody, because the victory's so complete. Number eight, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy, because it reveals that we've been saved from the wrath that is due to come upon our sin. My sin deserved God's wrath, and I've been saved from it because of Jesus' resurrection. Romans chapter 5, much more than having been justified by his blood, that is his death, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And then number nine, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it is a guarantee of our own future resurrection into heaven. Paul again writing to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. Knowing that he, that is the Father, who raised up the Lord Jesus, will also raise us up with Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee that we have been saved from the hell that our sin deserves and that heaven is our future home. And one day we will stand on that glassy sea before that throne and that that future is more sure than the seats that we sit on in this room this morning. We could go on and on and on and on, literally round out the afternoon, speaking of why the resurrection is a cause for joy in the life of a Christian. But I want to talk to those of you who don't know the Lord this morning as we close. One day, you've never put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you've never done that, I want to talk specifically to you for a moment. One day, the Jewish religious leaders came to Jesus And they hated him, already hated him by this point. They were already plotting his murder. And they came to him and they asked for him to give them a sign. Some spectacular sign as an evidence to confirm his claim to be the promised Jewish Messiah and to be the Son of God. And Jesus looked at them and he said, It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. 
But I'll give you one sign. No sign shall be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the idea is three days and three nights alone. He was prophesying of his resurrection following his death. And part of what Jesus was communicating to every single person in this world is to make sure that your God has conquered death. Somebody says, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. Ha! The Bible, as God looks at us, our creator looks at us, as he looks at your life, he knows for a fact that practically speaking, there is no such thing as an atheist in this world. Not practical. There are no practical atheists. If you think you're an atheist and that's the position that you hide behind to keep from coming face to face with the true and the living God, the God of the Bible, that's a game that you're playing in your head. You have a God. Everybody has a God. The Bible teaches that not only do all of us have a God that we worship, but further, we are becoming like the God that we worship. Everyone worships. Everyone worships a God. What is my God? Whatever your master passion is in life. Whatever your number one priority is in life, whatever gets you out of bed in the morning, what drives you through life, whatever that item is, whatever that thing is, whatever that learning, that goal, that philosophy, that God, that non-God, whatever it is, that is what your God is. Practically speaking, there is no such thing as an atheist. And Jesus breaks in with a clarity that only the Creator can have. And with a clarity that only heaven possesses, we don't have it since the fall in this world. And pleads with us out of a love for our souls and calls on us to not trust in any salvation or any savior or any messiah or any belief system or anything physical or intellectual or spiritual that has not conquered death on your behalf. Don't believe it, don't follow it, unless it has provided an answer for death and victory over death. And heaven knows that if we will heed the instruction of Jesus, we are left, as it relates to the whole human landscape, we are left with one person standing before us in human history, and that is the Lord Jesus Because only he has conquered death and made a way for that victory to be shared with us. And I'll tell you, no one in the world can know peace and no one in the world can know true joy until we have an answer for death and a victory over death. And only Jesus has that answer. And only Jesus has provided that victory. There's only one proper preparation for death and for eternity. And that is to put my trust and my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin. To come to God this morning and to say, God, I believe your assessment of me. That I am a sinner. That I've been less than perfect all of my life. I confess my sin to you. And I confess that your assessment is true concerning me. 
And I don't find it far-fetched at all, Lord, that but a single sin in my life could separate me from a relationship with you. But I also believe the revelation of your word, that you loved me so much, you valued my soul so much, that you sent your son into this world to die on that cross for the forgiveness of my sins, and that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And I believe that that is the Savior and that is the salvation that pleases you. And so I turn from all of my sin, all of my selfishness, all of my self, my, I, all of that. I turn from all of that related to my life, and I turn to you, and I give you my life. And when a person does that, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And you're born again. And when you're born again, you then receive the single greatest cause for joy associated with the resurrection of Jesus. And that is the privilege of knowing him in a personal relationship day in and day out. This risen Jesus through the entirety of this life and all of the life to come. That's the greatest cause for joy after salvation. There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. I have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God today. It's all there for the asking. It's all there for the receiving. I love the word of God. I love the strength of the word of God. I don't have any problem with the fact that God is the only one that knows what he's talking about in this world. And I don't have any problem with the fact that he can be very direct, exclusive, intolerant of wrong related to salvation and anything. The only thing that is important to me is in some way to take the truth and the revelation of this book off of these pages and to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, throw it into the mix of your heart and of your mind, your thinking, your feeling, your living, and then allow the Holy Spirit to cause these great truths that he gives to bring you to the place that he wants you brought to, and that is in relationship with him. I don't have a problem with saying that all of that out there is madness. It's all mad. I don't care how much money. I don't care how many degrees. I don't care. They don't know what they're doing out there. We don't know what we're doing apart from God. How many lives need to unravel how much of the world needs to unravel before we will accept the fact that only God knows what he's talking about. And to come under the shadow of his wing, to come under his care and his attention and become a part of his family. Don't get beat up anymore. You've been created for relationship with him. It's just a prayer away. The receiving of a gift away. Receive that gift today. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Father, we give you thanks this morning for our Savior. We thank you for his death on the cross for our sins. We're humbled by that love. And we're humbled by that sacrifice. And Lord, thank you for his burial. And this morning, Lord, we give you praise from our hearts for his resurrection. And as we look, Lord, at all that you have introduced into human history and the human condition through that death, that burial, and that resurrection, we realize that only our Maker could know us so well that he could provide a salvation that fits us so perfectly and meets every need. We stand in awe, Lord, of your wisdom, of your provision for us, and of the greatness of your love for each one of us and for our souls. We give you praise and we give you thanks for the joy, unshakable, beyond the reach of this world, joy that is ours because of the resurrection of our Savior. We give you praise this morning, Father, in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.